Testing, testing, one, two, three, 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 three. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. We're back in black and back in the booth on Backlick Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe. That's Z to the O or Z to the O. To cinema fans outside and overseas, taking a look back at the movies of yesteryear. It's the 75th episodes. Thank you for downloading and streaming. We really appreciate it. The reason we started this show was to strengthen the bond between my son, Zach, and me. We watched movies that I loved when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And I'm going to tell you what Zach thought about the classic movies that we just watched yesterday. We bring you this show absolutely free. You don't owe us a thing. And we'd really appreciate it if you could support us by giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Finally, please allow us. I'm sorry. Please follow us. Allow us. Please follow. Now, now all my words are jumbled. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok and Twitter. You can find the details in the show notes. Now, um, in honor of Juneteenth, we want to take a very special movie that occurs uh, long after that particular time period. This is a, we like to think of Juneteenth as a celebration of not only the actual event on which the holiday is based, but also uh, a celebration of Black culture, or Black American culture specifically. So Juneteenth, officially Juneteenth National Independence Day, also known as Jubilee Day, Emancipation Day, Freedom Day, and Black Independence Day, is a federal holiday in the United States commemorating the emancipation of enslaved Black Americans. It is also often observed for celebrating African American culture originating in Galveston, Texas. It has been celebrated annually on June 19th in various parts of the United States since 1865. Juneteenth commemoration is on the anniversary date of the June 19th, 1865 announcement of General Order Number 3 by Union Army General Gordon Granger, proclaiming freedom for all enslaved people in Texas, which was the last state of the Confederacy with institutional slavery. And I got that from Wikipedia. And what what happened is like, like uh, I read earlier, it's it ha- happened in various places. So I only found out about Juneteenth in, the na- in the, I think, the last 10 years. And... Uh, like, so we weren't taught about it in school, even though the holiday has been celebrated since 1865. So I'm um, glad to learn about it, celebrate it now. And I know this podcast is early, but we're going to continue this for a couple of episodes. So the movie is, uh, I feel like it's it not only, uh, it's kind of like an observation and a celebration of Black culture in the United States. And it also, uh, it's, I, I feel it's it's presence, uh, prescience. It, it's relevant. There we go. That's a better word. That's a word I know. That's a word I can pronounce. I feel like it's relevant to the holiday because it occurs uh, soon. I don't want to say soon after the time, but it's more like long after that time period. Because <laughs> this, uh, this story takes place in the early 1900s. So we get to see what it looks like when black people are free and they're able to build their own enterprises that at least we, we see a little bit of that that mostly it's the story of a young girl trying to make her way in the world so 
I want to talk to you about the color purple. So we're going to go to the opening credits. So here we are, the opening credits. We're going to talk about the color purple. And to tell you a little bit about this movie, it is about a black Southern woman who struggles to find her identity after suffering abuse from her father and others over four decades. And that's a nice, succinct uh, summary from IMDb. This movie was released February 7th, 1986, produced by Warner Brothers, Emblem Entertainment, and the Goober Peters Company. It grossed over $98 million in the U.S. and Canada on a $15 million budget. It had great reviews. So this fantastic movie was starring Whoopi Goldberg as Celie Johnson. You've seen her in Ghost, Sister Act, and Star Trek Generations, along with various other TV and movie projects. Also, Danny Glover as quote-unquote Mr. Albert Johnson. He's been in the Lethal Weapon series, 2012, and Operation Double Drop, uh, a prolific actor who never stops working. Oprah Winfrey as Sophia. She's seen her in Lee Daniels' The Butler, A Wrinkle in Time, and Selma, not to mention her multimedia empire. Margaret Avery as Suge Avery. What a coincidence. You've seen her in Magnum Force, Proud Mary. Welcome home, Roscoe Jenkins. Up next is Willard E. Pugh. He played Harpo Johnson. You've seen him in Robocop 2, Air Force One, and The Hills Have Eyes Part 2 from 1984. Up next is Akosua Busia. She played Nettie Harris. You've seen her in Tears of the Sun, Rosewood, and Mad City. Up next is Desrita Jackson. She played young Celia Harris. You've seen her in Sister Act. Adolf Caesar. He played old Mr. Johnson. You've seen him in A Soldier Story and The Hitter. Ray Dong Chong as Squeak. You've seen her in Commando. Quest for Fire and Shiver. Dana A. I. Oh, thanks. I'm tripped up. I'm tripped up over a simple name. Dana Ivy. She played Miss Millie. You've seen her in Sabrina, Rush Hour 3, and The Addams Family. Leonard Jackson played Paul Harris. He's been in Car Wash, Conspiracy Theory, and Boomerang. Bennett Gilroy played Grady. You've seen him in Days of Our Lives and The Young and the Restless. And I wanted to include this last one because he's gone so far in his career. And that is the fabulous Lawrence Fishburne. He's been in Swan, or he played Swan. And he's been in the Matrix series, John Wick series, and Blackish, the TV series. He's one of my favorite actors. I love seeing him do his thing. This movie was directed by Steven Spielberg. He's also directed Amistad, Schindler's List, Lincoln, and Saving Private Ryan. I can vouch for all of those movies except for Lincoln. Hadn't actually gotten watching that yet. But all of these movies is great. And it really speaks to his his ability to emphasize with the, will be empathic with the, the subject matter. This movie was written by Mino Mayes. Mayes? Mayes. 
Mayes. I, I didn't I didn't look up the pronunciation. Uh, I am so sorry. Uh, I'm going to try Meno Mayes. He wrote the screenplay. He also wrote Empires of the Sun, Lionheart, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. This movie is based on a book written by Alice Malsignor Talua Kate Walker, writing under the name Alice Walker. She wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Color Purple. Uh, the Color Purple. Miss Walker was the first African. Ma- Oh, chipping up over all of my words. Miss Walker was the first African-American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for fiction for The Color Purple. Yeah, see, there, I got it out. I got it out. I'm a genius. I I am a, a vocal acrobat. The music is by Quincy Jones. So, Quincy Delight Jones Jr. is best known for his influence in popular music from composing for Frank Sinatra and creating Grammy-winning hits with Michael Jackson. He helped shape the sound of music for the 70s and 80s. What is lesser known is he is also prolific in making music and composing musical scores for movies, such as In the Heat of the Night, The Gateway, and The Italian Job from 1969. And I'm going to throw this in here for free. He also composed the really catchy thing to... Fred's, uh, what's it called? Sanford and Son. I almost called it Fred Sanford because that's, I called it Fred Sanford when I was growing up, even though the name of the show is Sanford and Son. And I love that little tune that he whipped up for that show. So that's it for the opening credits. If you're enjoying the show, please remember that you can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, face masks, jerseys, and more at our refurbished website, backlickcinema.com slash shop. Check weekly for the new designs and products. I'll leave the links to Teespring and TeePublic.com in case there's anything there that you want. In particular, the pint glasses are only available at Teespring. I love those pint glasses. And uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to continue to trip up over my words during the rest of the podcast because a lot of stuff happened today that I did not expect to happen. Among those, you know how, you know, you go, you take your car to the mechanic. And they're like, yeah, we we fi- we can fix the problem that you brought it here for. But also, there's all this other stuff that need to be fixed. Well, I, I had that experience, except I went to a doctor to get a shot, specifically the second shingle shot. Uh, it's a two-shot regimen, and I went there for my second shot, and, was, and they were like, let me take your blood pressure. And then it, w- it became a whole thing. I, I had to do all of this other stuff after they checked my blood pressure. So it, was, it, it became a thing. There was more that was wrong with me than just going there to get my shot. And um, I, because I'm a, a veteran and I can take advantage of the VA healthcare system, and all I can say is that... Everyone in America should be able to have free health care because I am basically doing preventative care, right? So everyone in America should be able to take advantage of this app. It's myself and uh, my fiance. We, we both on the VA system. And without it, I don't know how we would be able to take care of our medical issues. So if you believe in universal health care in the United States, I think you should advocate for it uh it's more political than i usually get on on this show but uh the only reason that i'm doing it now is because of personal experience and because the throbbing in my arm from the shingle shot 
is is reminding me that maybe I should let people know how I feel <laughs> about the healthcare system in this country. So we're going to continue on with uh, with stuff I heard, but I didn't I didn't hear much actually. I I was going to do a, a stuff I heard segment, but it was like well, there's really nothing that I've heard. So we're we're going to go past that. We're going to go past stuff I heard and go straight to talk about some of my favorite parts of the movie. Okay, and now we're back. I'm going to talk about the stuff. I, well, not the stuff I heard. See, I'm, I'm confused again. We're going to talk about some of our favorite parts. So Zachary didn't have much of a commentary on this movie. I, I knew it was it's kind of a hard movie. I myself had, had not looked at this movie since the first time I saw it, because even though I thought it was one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, it's also a movie that I never needed to see again. But at the same time, I felt like it was an experience that I needed to share with my son. So, um, so I felt like I, I've done my duty. So his basic comment was that it was a good movie, but it was not his cup of tea. But I feel like I, I've done my duty and I've exposed him to the color purple. Now, for me, it was a good movie. And I think I saw it. I, I definitely saw it when I was much younger than he was. So it, it was way more impactful, I think, to me. A lot of the things that I... I was exposed to in this movie was like shocking. And it was like, Oh my God, they do that. Like it, those, those are the kind of explosions that I've had uh, when I was a, a teenager. I think I was when I saw this movie. So um, now, now that I'm older and, and I watched it again, I was afraid to experience those feelings again, but I watched it again and it, it was, uh, it was still impactful, but it, it wasn't, debilitating like it was the first time I saw it I guess because I'm older now uh, I've had some experience I've seen some things I've, I've heard some things so it it, it doesn't uh, hit as hard as it did when I was younger and uh, I think I, I I understood more as an adult so I think I think that was helpful so um, a lot of this movie is very hard to encompass because it's so much story. It's so much going on in the story, even though it is really about the life of one person and her experiences. It's really a lot that the movie encompasses. And there are actually a lot of people who felt that the movie didn't have enough. I'm thinking, well, wow, this is a two and a half hour movie. It definitely has enough. It definitely, I felt like the movie did all it could to, because it's like when you have a book as powerful and and as impactful as something like The Color Purple or, I don't know, War and Peace or something like that. It's uh, You're definitely going to have to leave stuff out when you translate it into film. So you're never going to feel that the movie is going to be as good as the, the incredible novels that they are based on. Uh, novels add so much more depth and flavor to it and also novels can be as long as the author needs it to be where movies have to be mindful of the time limits and pacing and and those sorts of things that novels don't really have to be concerned with so um yeah it's a lot of stories so it's 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 very hard to compact all of these moments this is one of those movies that it's really the entire movie as a whole is my favorite part. And then I can just pick up some of the more impactful scenes that I had, that the movie had specifically for me. 
because I feel like because I'm a male, I'm probably not the best person to talk about it. But at the same time, I feel like this movie is for everybody. So everybody should be able to talk about those things, uh, the subject matter that this movie explores. So let's let's talk about some of these emotional scenes, the, the strong emotional scenes that these movies that, that this movie had. Um, the these were the part that really got to me the most, right? So, like I said, the whole movie is my favorite part. But let me let me just pick out some moments, uh, such as uh, the abuse. So the movie is about Celie. Uh, so Celie is a young black girl growing up in the early 1900s. I think the movie starts at around 1909, and Celie is uh she's formerly at this age, when she's a girl, her her name is Celie Harris, and she has a sister. Let me see if I can find her name because I I'm going to mess up on the names, and um, my brains is French fries. So <laughs> it's it's about C it's about Celie and Natty Harris in the beginning. So uh, they're sisters, and they're basically Celie is older, and Natty is her younger sister, and they're basically best friends. They live out in the country. So, you know, they don't really get a chance to be around other kids. So they're around each other. And Celie is, you know, abused by her father in, in every possible way. And the, and this is basically the beginning of her journey. So uh, she had her, her mother. I believe her mother was still her, her mother passed away. No, not right away. Uh See, I'm I'm already forgetting stuff, but they don't really show her mother in um in the earlier scenes. They only really comment on her mother after her mother died. So um the after her mother dies, then the the uh, physical abuse began. It was uh, physical sexual abuse. So there was uh, incest. There was uh, and then her her father is always calling her ugly. Yeah, don't have a kind word to say to her, right? So just a horrible, evil human being. And, and um, as Nettie, Celia's little sister, is growing up, um, she's like, now Nettie is catching her father's eye. Now now her father's looking at Nettie as a potential to uh, sexually abuse as Nettie is getting older. And at the same time, um, the church that they go to, there's a guy that they only refer to as Mr. And it's funny because Celie never knows the man's first name. They only know him as Mr. So Mr. is eyeing Nettie specifically because Celie is generally considered ugly by everybody in the movie. So he's looking at Nettie. And Nettie's, what, four, 13 or 14 years old? And Mr. is like, I don't know, 30, 35? It's crazy. And and this is just accepted. This is just accepted by the community. This is almost traditional. Like it's it's okay for a way older man to be uh to pursue like a teenager as a potential mate. So um this is where uh the emotional abuse continues as uh the father uh well, let me back up some. So uh so mister goes to the harris home and he inquires about marrying Nettie, the younger girl but the problem is the father girl is also interested in Nettie. so he says that 
he can't have Nettie, but he can have Celie because Celie is a hard worker and she's capable of learning new things. She's capable of learning whatever he has to teach. She can clean up around the house or whatever. Basically, he's bargaining with her as if she was, you know, basically a servant. It's like, you can have this person and this person will service you. And seeing as how he couldn't have Nettie, he decides to settle for Celie and and brings her home so in this the sisters are separated and 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 this continues the trauma that silly is already having Uh, among all the abuse that she's suffering now she's being pulled away from her younger sister and now her younger sister is at risk of abuse from her father and so and then the abuse continues when silly is at uh the mister's house so after he's brought to mister's house he has a bunch of kids who are rowdy and uncontrolled and just all of them are just generally running amok now i am not exactly how many kids mister has it in the beginning like when she's first brought to the house there are three kids but then in, in later scenes there are like 12 kids so i'm not exactly sure how many how many kids this man has but there are a lot of kids hanging around his house and uh and animals and whatnot he he runs a farm he's a fairly successful farmer because he's always well dressed in his house it it looks it's kind of confusing because sometimes you see the house and it looks like you know your standard rundown farmhouse and then sometimes you see it and it looks like a huge estate so maybe like the front of the house is the estate looking part and the back porch is like the the raggedy regular looking house i'm not exactly sure but (laughs) but uh he so she's brought there and she's expected to clean up the whole house he is verbally abusive he is physically abusive you know she can't say anything without him smacking her around he'll smack her before he smacks his own kids and basically she's just another kid in the house she's as basically like the the oldest child is barely a couple of years younger than she is and yet she's expected to be this child's mother right so or this child's stepmother so uh now she's she's a child raising a bunch of children and also trying to uh keep up with all of the stuff that mister has in store for her notice that she does not know his first name she doesn't presumably she knows his last name because i think her father refers to him as harrison i presume that she's heard other people call him mr harris but she only calls him mr or sir right so and this is supposed to be his wife this this is terrible this is uh and this is something that i noticed as i am older than I, that i didn't notice when i was younger so you know given to he's he's given she is given to mr basically as property and then uh when she's reunited with Nettie. So Nettie's on an errand or something where she has to deliver some letters or something to Mr. And so she sees Celia and they're all happy and, and you know, they celebrate their reunion. And Nettie doesn't want to go back home because now her father's on top of her. So basically she's re- receiving the abuse that Celie formerly had. So they talk to, they talk to Mr. And given that Mr. wanted Nettie in the first place, he happily agrees to let Nettie stay at the house. So uh, you have uh, you have both Celie and Nettie living with an abusive husband and both of them living in fear of this man. And there's a there's a scene where to demonstrate 
his absolute control over Nettie, I'm sorry, Silly, where like one of her duties is to shave him. So it's old fashioned shave. This is like not with like modern razor blades, but with a straight razor. And like they like to shave outside for whatever reason. So <laughs> they're outside on the porch and he, you know, he slaps her because she's too slow with getting the razor and stuff set up. And so he sits down and he threatens her, like, if you cut me, I'll kill you or whatever. So <laughs> she's trying to shave as carefully as he can. Now, the thing is, he is totally at her mercy, completely and totally. But he has such control over her that he is without fear that she'll try to slash his throat, which is what an abused woman might try to do. But she doesn't. She as carefully as he can, as she can start shaving him with a straight razor, you know, without, without the thought of having, you know, you know, just to end it right then and there. What, so one of the emotional beats is uh, having her sister back. The other emotional beat is the pain of having her sister ripped away. So it comes to pass that Mr. Eventually, you know, he, he already has eyes on Nettie. So on, Nettie is going to school. And so because she doesn't have to work for anybody, she has the freedom to go to school. And she was going to use that education to teach Nettie. Every, I mean, Nettie's going to teach every Celie everything she knows. She's going to specifically teach Celie how to read. Since Celie can't go to school, Nettie's going to take what she learned and teach Celie how to read. So on her way to school one day, She's confronted by Mister. He's like playing with her, following her on his horse, and then he tries to get her in the bushes and try to rape her. But then she kicks him in the dick, and then she runs off. And uh, but she really has no place to go. She can't go back home. She doesn't really have any other family around, so she ends up going back to uh, Mister's house to her sister Celie. And so, you know, having been rebuffed, Mr. naturally wants to kick uh, Nettie out of his house. And, you know, the, the, the pain of him ripping the two sisters apart was just, you know, it's heart wrenching. Right. He literally picks her up and throws her out. And uh, the two sisters are, are crushed and heartbroken at being torn apart. And, you know, Nettie is obviously hesitating near the edge of the property after she's finally thrown off the property she lingers around the front of the property talking to her sister and then finally mr takes up rocks and starts throwing rocks at Nettie to get her to go away and it was just it was just terrible he was just an evil man he's just evil personified he doesn't do anything good in this movie just he's a well-written a well-written villain because he doesn't do anything good so uh, it is like if there is a bad choice, he chooses the worst choice possible. So. Uh, so after this, another beat is uh, after they introduce Harpo uh, and um, let's see, I forgot another character, Sophia. So it's really the introduction of Sophia because Harpo is basically the inept older child of Mr. So Harpo Harris is uh, he. <laughs> He is he brings Sophia home and Sophia immediately demonstrates her dominance. It's like she she already has a bearing of a woman who's not going to take any guff from from anybody, man or woman, black or white. So at one point, uh Harpo, he's going to first he goes to his father to ask, you know, what he should do about Sophia. And 
his father's like, well, you should beat her. And then he goes, he goes out to the field where Celia is and he complains to Celia and Celia says, just beat her. Now, some people would think that Celia is jealous of um, Sophia because of Sophia's brashness and her, her freedom and her ability to basically do what she wants and, you know, her boisterous and whatnot. But I believe that because Celie is so beaten down because she's beaten down to the point where she doesn't believe there's any other way out. She's never seen an example of a free woman uh, being able to do what she wants. It's like, I think Sophia is probably the first example. So she doesn't, uh, she doesn't recognize any other way. Uh, she she doesn't recognize that a woman can be free because she's basically accepted her, uh, her, her, her existence. So when Harpo asked, Seely, what should he do? He said, beat her, because that's all she knows. Seely tells Harpo, Harpo to beat Sophia, because that's all Seely knows. So, uh, obviously, uh, Harpo attempts to beat Seely, and 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 does not succeed. <laughs> he goes to his father with a black eye, trying to say that uh, a goat or a mule hit him in the eye, or whatever. Another emotional beat is the introduction of the singer Suge Avery. Suge Avery is uh, kind of a, a, juke bo- a joint, juke joint, I think that's what you call him, a juke joint singer. So she's touring the, the juke joint and nightclubs circuit. And uh, apparently she's from that area and is somebody that Mr. has hi- had his eye on for the uh, for all of his life or all of his early life and um she it's like she rebuffs his advances and later on she says because he's weak and it's funny how suge or suge avery actually interprets um she interprets mister's behavior as weak and she knows that he is a weak man so this is a lot of uh this actually answers a lot of questions so with suge saying that uh, Mr. is weak. So basically we interpret that as being that uh, Mr. is a bully. He's only able to assert his dominance over children. And you never see him try to uh, dominate or um, you, you never see him try to lord over grown women. It's only children that he can hold his dominance over, which I guess is why he's attracted to children as sexual partners. And um, so is this is Suge is was uh an object of of mister's affection and you know she she was like you know she didn't want anything to do with him because he's he's a weakling uh a bully to children so because uh Suge is a strong independent woman you know she made her own way in the world she did not follow conventions she also has issues where she is separated from her father her father is a local preacher and the one thing she she wants most in the world is for her father to accept her as she is, to love her unconditionally. And it's not something that her preacher father can do. So um, so she goes in the world with it, carrying this hurt and pain as baggage that peeks out every once in a while. In a moment of weakness, you can you can see that pain express itself. And I guess it also expressed itself in, in her excessive drinking and basically how she acts around other people. When she, mer- when she first meets 
Celia, you know, the first thing she says is, you show is ugly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, but the, the interesting thing is that um, basically we see later on that both, uh, both, um, well, first thing we find out is, you know, obviously Celia never learns Mr.'s first name. So it is when she meets so uh, no, I'm sorry. When she meets Suge Avery, that's when she uh, learns that Mister's first name is Albert, and she's befuddled because he doesn't look or act like a guy named Albert. And it's kind of telling us like that. He, she goes most of her life like she only finds out about this in as an adult. So she goes like almost uh, a quarter of, of her life never knowing what this her husband's first name is. It's just ridiculous to say the least. Uh, basically to show her status is to be as he she has the lowest status possible so um she uh brings her upstairs or, or whatever you know and they settle and uh mister the next day attempts to cook breakfast but he doesn't know how to use the stove he doesn't uh actually uh Celie had worked out a system for cooking in in the in the in his kitchen and he doesn't know or understand the the system Although there is kind of a plot hole because at one point he gives the mailman cookies that he claims that he baked himself in the kitchen. But then later on, they show him not knowing how to use anything in the kitchen. So I guess he lied to the mailman about the cookies. Either he bought the cookies or he had Celie make the cookies because the way he moves around in his own kitchen, it looks like that he has no idea how to use the kitchen. And so, um, I mean, obviously this is, he doesn't have a stove and an electric oven. He has a, a wood burning stove and he, uh, he doesn't know where like the butter is and he doesn't know how to get the pots and pans from the contraption that Sealy fixed up so that there would be more room in the kitchen to work. So, um, so I don't know what the deal with the cookies is. Somebody please tell me anyways. So one of the funniest parts in the movie is that mister is trying to cook breakfast for Celie. And uh this so this part is like pure Steven Spielberg. So he so Mr. Um is trying to use the stove and he's asking Celie's question. Celie just ignores him. She actually just gets into a rocking chair and just sits down and watches him as he tries to make his way around the kitchen and just amusing herself with his uh inadequacies. And so uh, he goes to the wood. He tries to put wood in a wood burning stove and the fire is just not hot enough. He starts to put after he puts the wood in and, and the wood is on fire. It's just not hot enough to his satisfaction. Then he tries to throw some rags in and still the wood is not hot enough to his satisfaction. And, you know, Celia's just sitting there grinning at him. So finally he goes into the back. He pulls out a gigantic can of kerosene and then he switches back to the scene looking at Celia. And Celia is gone. The rocking chair is just rocking where somebody used to be sitting. She is gone <laughs> because then Mr. Pours some of this kerosene in the wood burning stove and the, the oven absolutely explodes, uh, explodes with fire and flames. Like it doesn't literally explode. It doesn't tear the house down. But um, really, Mr. catches the brunt of the blast and he's now carrying a bunch of burnt food up to suge and he's all smoking like a cartoon character so that was fun i think that was probably the funniest part in the movie 
So, and then she'll like throws the food out of her room because it's disgusting, obviously. So then, um, Silly goes into the kitchen and she makes a proper breakfast. It was, it was an outstanding breakfast and then take it to Suge, but she, she's not sure about Suge's temperament. So she like sits in the corner on the outside hallway of the room. And then, um, Suge slides back an empty tray, I guess, meaning that the food met, which, uh, Suge's satisfaction. So, uh, that, that, that was, that was a funny beat in that movie. There's also the uh, the fight at the juke joint, which is fun. So th- this fight occurs when basically Squeak and Sophia kind of gets into it. I think this is after Sophia leaves uh, leaves what's his name Harpo. So Sophia leaves Harpo, and then she kind of and Harp and Harpo and Mister they join together, and with the help of Lawrence Fishburne's character, Swan, they build a juke joint out in the woods. And so after the juke joint is built, uh, Sophia comes in with her new bow because she's still technically married to Harpo. And Harpo also has kind of a girlfriend. And they're, uh, what you call it? So Harpo, Harpo doesn't care about this girl. You know, she's kind of just dancing with Harpo. You know, just, you know, because she's content with what the way her life is now. So uh, Carpel's girl comes up and, you know, starts. I don't know. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Bowstring or whatever. She she starts. Uh, <laughs> if she were uh, like uh, a peacock, you know, fanning her tail. for I don't know. I don't know what you call it. She's basically trying to antagonize Sophia. So then she slaps Sophia and then Sophia punches her into a gap in the floor and she falls into the water because the juke joint is built on top of water. And uh, and then this causes the entire uh, jukebox joint to start. Everybody's fighting everybody. Everybody's involved in... And Sophia is just sitting there, just enjoying the fight. She's... Not Sophia, I'm sorry. Sophia's fighting. I mean, Celie. Celie is just sitting there enjoying the fight. She's watching everybody. She's fighting and then uh, but Avery knows better, and she has to grab Celie and pull her out of the juke joint. And that, that whole part was very amusing. So e- even after Suge pulls Celie out, she Celie comes back to look at more of the fight, and Suge has to pull her out again, out of the juke joint. So it is at this time that, uh, well, it's around this time that Suge and, and Celie has sort of a relationship. And in an earlier scene, this is when uh, Celie reveals that, you know, she has no physical attraction or uh, any kind of love for Mister. You know, he he gets on top of her and he just does his business. And Avery says, uh, "That you make it sound like he's just going to the toilet." And Celie says, "Yeah, it's exactly like that." So, um, and. I don't think Celie realizes it or or doesn't is not really conscious of it, but she's really attracted to Avery. And then Avery returns that affection. And and I I guess with her meeting with Avery, she realizes that she's attracted more to women than to men. So they they kind of have a relationship. And then um but you know, 
the singer now needs to leave. That Celie wants to go with us, with Suge, but Mister is so present that she can't really, she can't really escape. She can't. She's kind of stuck with uh, with Mister because he he makes it so that he's always present. So she she can't devise a way to leave, and it's at this point that she realized that that's an option. She can leave if that if she had a way out, she could leave, and that's that's the path that she's looking towards. Since now she's seen enough example of strong women that she feels like she can leave, but she uh you know like her like I said her path is blocked, <laughs> so so she's unable to escape. And then when Suge leaves, you know she gets in the car and goes. Celie just faints because she's. A, she's in love with Suge, and B, she, she, that was really a, a way out that's no longer available to her. So, um, but I also noticed that uh, about the relationship between Celie and Mister is that they they kind of have something of a bond, at least in this movie. Like Mister is still abusive towards Celie but if he was a different person like well if he just didn't ha- if he wasn't so evil if he didn't have such a hateful attitude if he wasn't physically and mentally abusive towards Celie then they might have had uh, a loving relationship theoretically so and there it kind of peaks out in some uh area so there's one portion where Mr is getting ready to see Suge and he's like all discombobulated trying to get dressed and he's looking for his socks he's looking for his uh watch he's looking for his tie he's looking for all of these things to um to get dressed and because uh, Sealy is attuned to what either mr wants or mr needs you know when he leaves and he comes back looking for a tie and Sealy already has a tie she's anticipated his need and then when he leaves and come back because he forgot his cufflinks but Celie already has a couplings that he wanted. And, but, you know, Mr. doesn't recognize this. You know, he, he doesn't say thank you or anything. He just grabs them and go. So she's attuned to his knees. And then there is a, a part when um, Suge has left and when Suge comes back. So when Suge comes back, they're both acting like the love of their life has returned to visit them. So they rush to the front of the house and um, and Suge gets out of the car, this brand new car, and she has a man with her, and they both realize what this means. And so, so now she announces that she's married, and both of them, both Celie and Mr. are heartbroken. And you see a tiny bit of connection between them because um she says that uh, you know, when Celie says, no, not Celie, when Suge says, Are you guys all right? Because they're both, you know, downcast. Their, their countenance is is sad. So, you know, Suge is like, what's wrong? And Celie says, well, we're all right. We just got a cold, though. And then she does a little cough. And then she she bumps, she elbows Mr. lightly. And then Mr. coughs, too. They both pretend that they have colds as to reason why, why they're basically so sad to see that she's married now. So... <laughs> So, uh, it, like, just a tiny bit of a connection that they could have built him on, but they can't because Mister is the embodiment of evil. So that something like that can't happen. In the second meeting, Suge finds 
the letters, well, she finds one letter that uh, came from Nettie, that Seely sister. So this is significant because Mr. had promised that Nettie and Seely would never see each other again. Nettie said she would write, but Seely has never gotten a letter from her sister. So Seely is waiting for letters from her sister and she never gets them. So she thinks that maybe her sister is dead or maybe Mr. is keeping all the letters. She has no way of knowing because she has no way of actually checking the mailbox for herself. Mr. is always home and he always gets to the mailbox right as around the time that the mailman comes. And then he also threatens Nettie by saying that he fixed the mailbox so that he knows if somebody went into it. Now, this is probably a lie to try to maintain his control over Seely, but this is the thing that keeps Seely from finding any letters from her sister until a chance incident happens where, where uh, Mr. is drunk and talking with Suge's husband and they're just having a good old time. And while they're having a good old time, Suge goes out to the mailbox and the mailman comes oblivious to everything that's been going on in the house. And there's a single letter and it's for Seely and it's from Nettie. And that's when Suge realized what's been going on. So they grabs Nettie. I'm sorry. She grabs Seely and they go upstairs and they go through the letters. And that's, you know, the emotional moment of, of Seely reading the letter from her sister that she hasn't seen since she was a child. And then, then uh, both Seely and Suge going on a treasure hunt for the rest of the letters. Because if there's one letter, then there must be others. So they I go through the house and they find the other letters. And then uh, after Seely, I'm sorry, after Suge leaves again, you know, Seely now has these letters from her sister and, and surreptitiously reads all of these letters. Finding these letters emboldens Celia. So now she's seen all, all of these examples of black women. And she's also uh, have all of these letters that had been taken from her. And now she f- has a kind of reconnection with her sister and also in anticipation of her sister returning to the United States from Africa. So through a lot of circumstances, e- uh, her sister, Nettie, has um, moved around the United States, ended up as a missionary, ends up going to Africa. And she tells about her story in Africa and that she's also found Celie's two children that she had with her father. So they they grew up in Africa and uh, basically are acclaimed to African language and culture. So even though they're American, because they grew up in Africa, they, they're basically African. So... <laughs> So um, this leads to a, a scene where, you know, uh, Mister needs his routine shave, and and this is when uh, Suge is still there. So Mister is having his routine shave, and you know she is uh, he's a verbally and physically abusive as usual, and she Celie can't take this no more. So she she's about to do him. She's about to do him in. Meanwhile, Suge knows that there's something wrong, so she's rushing to the the house, the main house, because she's out. She's out of bounds somewhere. I'm not sure where she's at. She's out in the field. So she realized that Nettie's, um, I'm sorry, Celie's up to something. So she's rushing back to the house as Celie is slowly approaching 
um, Mister with a freshly sharpened razor blade. So she gets closer and closer, and then uh, what happens is that just before she slices uh, Mister's throat, <laughs> she grabs her and you know basically prevents the prevents the slashing. And I think this is the first time that Mister knows that. He's losing control of Silly. He's slowly losing control. He's finally losing control. And then uh, the most impactful and and dominating scene in the movie is there's a a dinner table scene. So everybody's at the dinner table. It's it's Suge and her husband. It's Sophia. And uh, this is Sophia after she's been in prison, after she's been beaten. And now she's almost docile. She's kind of experienced the reverse of what Celie went through. So where Celie was strong and dominating before, now she is quiet and meek and unsure. And that is, uh, and at the same time, Celie is getting stronger and stronger because of Sophia's example early in her life. So, uh, that, you know, there's, uh, Mr.'s father there and, um, all of, you know, all of Mr.'s children. So, this is where uh Suge announces to uh Suge announces to Mr. that they're going to leave. You know, their time is up here, they're going to leave, they're going to continue with her tour, and they're taking Celia with them. And obviously Mr. rebuffs this, you know, and he's like, you know, uh she's not going anywhere or she's she's ugly and she's She's not talented and she's got nowhere to go and she doesn't have any money and all this other thing. And it's it's not like he threatens her this time because he can't really. I think he's recognizing her strength. So now he's casting doubt on her ability to leave. And one of the things he says to her and he was like, you better not take my money. And this is when this is basically ignites Celia and she says, when have I ever asked anything from you? When have I ever asked anything from you? I didn't ask anything from you, not even your sorry-ass hand in marriage. And that was a powerful scene. I think that's probably the scene that earned Whoopi Goldberg her first ever Emmy, uh, not Emmy, what is that called? Academy Award nomination. She did. She was nominated as Best, best Actress. And I should, she should have won that. <laughs> she eventually got a uh, supporting actress for Ghost, but she should have won that. Best, uh, I, I don't know if that her role calls for supporting actor or best, best actress. I think that was for her best actress in a motion picture. But yeah, she definitely should have won that because all, all throughout the movie, you really feel Celia. You, you feel what she's going through. And so when she explodes at that scene, it's, it's, it's just powerful. So um, after that scene, that's when uh, Suge takes Celia away from Mister, off to try to build a better life. So when they're gone, like basically Mister falls apart. His house is a mess. He hasn't shaved because apparently he doesn't know how or he doesn't care. And he's drunk all the time. And even his father has to take pity on him. And his father is, uh, his father is as evil as, well, you, you can tell why Mr. is evil because his father's evil. Now, Mr. does not, he's unsuccessful at passing this evil along to his children. I mean, they try to be like him, but they're 
even weaker than he is. So he, he doesn't really impart any good lessons on his children. So, um, so his life is basically falling apart, but kind of like Hacilia predicted in the dinner scene when uh, she was screaming at him. So knowing, I don't know, uh, he receives a letter from the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Office. Uh, I'm not, is it Customs? Immigration. Immigration Office. So... <laughs> So he gets this letter and he decides to do one good thing in his life. This letter is addressed to Celia, uh, but Celia isn't there and he doesn't really have a way of contacting her. So he does this one good thing in his life. He makes it so that Nettie can come back to the United States because I think so he gets the letter. He goes to the immigration office somewhere in Georgia, probably Atlanta, and he uh, he makes a case for Nettie to return because um when Nettie left, they didn't have, I, I don't know the circumstance of how Nettie left, but however they left, it made it difficult for her to get back in the U.S. Um, maybe she lost her uh, papers or whatever. I'm not exactly sure. She left with some missionaries and now she needed to be able to get back into the United States. So Mr. does the one good thing and makes the case for her return. And then you have the reunion of the sisters and it was uh, just a, a glorious ending to that movie. So uh, it was, it was, a, oh, and by the way, uh, Celie inherits the house that her, her father had died and she ends up inheriting the house and, and his property. She doesn't get any of his, of his money, but she gets a significant amount of property and she's able to start her own uh, business and whatnot. So it starts to look better for, uh, for Celie, her, her, her path is on a, a more glorious trajectory. And then amongst all of this, she gets to see her sister and her children. And it's just an emotional ending of that movie. So yeah, it this supposed to be like our favorite parts in the movie, but I kind of narrated the movie. I don't know. I try not to do that, but that's with a movie like this, you almost have to do that. And, and, and I left a, a lot of significant parts and then people are going to say, you left out this part and you left out that part. And yeah, I know. And, and I like those parts too, especially one of the most impactful parts that all the memes are made of where Sophie, <laughs> Sophie says, I love Harpo. God knows I do, but I kill him dead. If you try to beat me, I know I left that part out, but it was, it's so much to put into this movie. Everybody knows that part. So I wanted to get to the parts that most people don't actually talk about. So uh, that's it for the favorite parts. Now we're going to look at the trivia, the making of The Color Purple. All right. So now we get to check out the trivia for The Color Purple. Trivia is provided by IMDb. To start us off, Sophia's speech at the dinner table was an ad lib prompted by Steven Spielberg. In the middle of filming the scene, he asked Winfrey to express to Celia how she felt that day when she saw Celia in the store as Sophia was shopping for Miss Millie. After the scene, Goldberg walked over to Winfrey and gave her a hug and told her that now she became an actress. A minor yet long-standing feud between Oprah Winfrey and Whoopi Goldberg began 
while The Color Purple was still being filmed. After Winfrey had improvised her now classic dinner table scene, Goldberg approached her and reportedly told her she had now become an actor. It is alleged that following that remark, Winfrey rebuffed, What do you know? This is your first movie too. Accustomed to the TV talk show format on AM Chicago from 1974, Oprah Winfrey is often looking directly into the camera during her scenes, a habit that both amused and frustrated Steven Spielberg in the early stages. Whoopi Goldberg's and Oprah Winfrey's first film is The Color Purple. Before production, Steven Spielberg felt very insecure about being director of the film. In fact, his initial response to Quincy Jones' request was no. Spielberg felt that his knowledge of the Deep South was inadequate and that the film should have been directed by someone of color who could have at least related to the struggles faced by many blacks living in the Old South. Jones then argued, no, I want you to do it. And besides, did you have to be an alien to direct E.T., the extraterrestrial? Spielberg appreciated his friend's logic and decided to take the role as director of the film. Steven Spielberg's first baby was born during the filming of this movie, and he was serendipitously called away from the set while preparing the early scene in which Seeley gives birth, leaving the scene to be to his assistant director. Spielberg later used the sounds of his newborn crying on the same scene of Seeley giving birth, which he had missed during directing. Whippy Goldberg won the part of Seely in audition for Steven Spielberg by doing a comedy act she had developed about a stoned E.T. getting arrested in Oakland, California for, for possession. The audition was attended by many of Spielberg's famous friends, including producer Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. Caused this film caused one of the most controversial moments in history of the Academy Awards when it received 11 nominations but did not include Steven Spielberg as Best Director. In the end, it won none of them. This movie is tied with The Turning Point from 1977 for the most Oscar nominations without a single win, that being 11. With Whoopi Goldberg being Oscar-nominated for Best Actress and Margaret Avery and Oprah Winfrey for Best Supporting Actresses, this is the first time to feature three performances by black, by black actors of any gender which were nominated for Academy Awards. It is also the first film to feature multiple Oscar-nominated performances by black women and the, first to, and the first film to have two black actors of any gender be nominated in the same category, in this case, Best Supporting Actress. In the Turner Classic Special, Spielberg on Spielberg, Steven Spielberg cites The Color Purple as his first serious film and that he would have not been able to do Empires of the Sun from 1987 and Schindler's List from 1993 without the stepping stone that was this film. In an early interview for his role in Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio stated that The Color Purple is the film that made him want to be an actor. Steven Spielberg admits that his greatest mistake in directing this film was his lack of courage portraying the lesbian relationship between Celie and Suge. At the time of filming, Spielberg felt that the overt sexuality between the two characters would alienate audiences 
a decision he now regrets. Alice Walker, author of the source material, attended the rushes at the end of filming each day, yet she was horrified with the final cut of the film, especially what she referred to as the Oklahoma-type opening scene. However, at the premiere, when she watched the movie with an enthusiastic audience, she changed her mind. She now says that she likes the film very much, but thinks of it as a being very different from her book. Alice Walker may have, may have had doubts about Steven Spielberg directing, but was at least partially convinced when she saw E.T. the Extraterrestrial. After seeing the film, she felt like that E.T. was treated like a person of color. Alice Walker was uneasy about Spielberg being hired to direct the film. However, she was conf confident in a then-unknown Whoopi Goldberg after seeing her San Francisco, San Francisco stand-up routine in which she portrayed many different characters. Steven Spielberg had produced Peter Goober and John Peters banned from the set because of their history of offering, of offering suggestions during production. Oprah Winfrey was at a weight loss camp to lose weight when she learned that she got the part as Sophia. She had to leave immediately as the role was required her to be heavy. Despite being a friend, co-producer, and musical director of the, of the movie, Quincy Jones became intrusive in Spielberg's work during production. And despite the film score being nominated for an Oscar, Spielberg never worked with any other composer but John Williams for the next 30 years. Quincy Jones got into a shouting match with Spielberg over the amount of screen time his then-protege Oprah Winfrey would receive in the film. After proving to Spielberg that she, was, she had the acting chops, additional scenes were added for the first-time actor. Radon Chong said about working with Oprah Winfrey, Oprah's a great brown noser. If you're in a room with her, she'll pick the most powerful person and she'll become best friends with them. When we worked with her, she was that fat chick that was the wannabe cheerleader, that was the student council president, that was best friends with the principal. She was that fat chick in school that did everything and everybody loved her. That's Oprah. Love me, love me, love me, Chong said. She has to respect Oprah because she altered the DNA of the universe. But she also said, Oprah is boring because ultimately she's all about Oprah. Finally, Brian Dennehy told Entertainment Weekly, Danny Glover's performance moved him to tears. That's and it's neat when a powerful actor appreciates the work of another powerful actor. So that's all I got for trivia for INDV. And now we're going to move to see what the critics thought. All right. Now let's see what the critics thought about The Color Purple. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critic score of 81% and an audience score of 94%. And on IMDb Reviews, it has a 7.7 .7 out of 10. So Roger Ebert, it's been a while since I spoke about my frenemy, Roger Ebert from Chicago Sun-Times. He wrote, it is a great, warm, hard, unforgiving, triumphant movie. And there is not a scene that does not shine with the love of the people who made it. Yeah, I, I, I concur. This is one of the times. I mean, I'm not, I call him a friend of me and, and we agree a lot. So 
But there are times on the times that we disagree. I'm wondering what he's smoking. But yeah, this he's basically saying what I was feeling when I watched the movie for the first time. Marty Wilson from Showjoiner wrote, the movie filled me with disbelief and disappointment. I am believing that Marty is one of the people who absolutely loved the book when, and read it when it came out. Christopher Knoll from, from FilmCritic.com wrote, it is unquestionably overwrought, but it is a truly lovely film with a lot of emotion in it. The meaning of all that emotion is unfortunately still up for grabs. Um, see, this is from a male perspective, obviously, because yes, it's an emotional film, but it's told almost entirely from a woman's point of view. And a woman would know these emotions, and apparently he does not. Uh, Daryl Pickney from the New York Review of Books wrote, Spielberg's strategy was to broaden Walker's cunning simplifications and a blowing up her plot. Spielberg not only makes it flaws more visible, he also uncovers beneath the feminist rhetoric the melodrama of its at its hearts. Uh, and this appears to be a fan of the film, or, uh, or I'm sorry, a fan of the book. And uh, I don't know. I've never read the book, so I really can't make any commentary on, on what he is writing here. Emmanuel Levi from EmmanuelLevi.com wrote, Spielberg may not have been the best choice to direct this feminist text, making a clean, neat movie that lacks authenticity, but the movie has many touching moments and the entire female ensemble is good, particularly Whoopi Goldberg in the second half. Um, I kind of get his vibe, sort of, kind of. But I would say that uh, I don't think that it lacks authenticity. Maybe he doesn't really think that there are that many pedophiles that are running around in the Deep South. But I, I don't know. I think that maybe there was. I, I, don't, I don't get what he means by that it lacks authenticity. Or, or, but I didn't read the whole review and I don't really care. I don't, I don't really agree with, with that part. But on, on the other hand, most of this is something I, I can agree with. Finally, we have Monica Raymond from Shajoiner. Again, and she wrote, it is, it's not the color purple we notice so much as the heavy hand of the filmmaker. And I believe that this is another person who wants it, wants the movie to be just like the book. And you can't have that. You, you can't, you can't do it. You can't, unless you're, it's a short story. Like if you do a short story, then your short, if they make a movie of your short story, then they can make the movie just like the short story. There's very little that you need to leave out of a short story. As a matter of fact, a lot of times they'll expand the short story to fill out things uh, because, you know, otherwise the movie would be too short or the movie might lack depth. But uh, um, yeah, you can't, if you're doing a novel, you're, you're in order for it to be a good movie, it's going to be different from the novel. It's basically reinterpreting the novel to a different medium, uh, but at the same time, uh, basically kind of retaining the ideas and the feeling of the novel and interpreting it for uh, a movie audience. So, and, and I've experienced this. I've, I've seen, uh, I've read some books and then seen how the movie is so, and so much different from the, the book that I, that I loved. And, and basically in my experience, it's just that the movie is so much shorter and that the characters don't have as much depth. Now, one of these is a uh, Jurassic park, I guess, but, a lot of times at the same time, um, I'm reading the book after I've, I've read the, um, I'm reading, I'm reading the book after I saw the movie. So 
from that perspective, it's like I'm expounding upon the movie or I'm reading about the things that the movie didn't cover. But rarely do I read the book and then see the movie. I think I did that with uh, Lord of the Rings. And so with Lord of the Rings, there, my experience is that the book is just, sh- the movie is shortened. It's like a shortened Cliff Notes version of the book. And as long as it gets some of the main ideologies and the same emotions, then I'm, I'm somewhat satisfied. So, but, um, but uh, actually with Lord of the Rings, I was extremely satisfied. <laughs> I love that series of movies. And the same thing with like certain TV shows like Game of Thrones. But even uh, the TV shows are allowed to expound because they're serial. You know, it's episode by episode. They're allowed to expand the characters in a, in the way that a movie cannot. So it's, uh, but it is different watching your, your book be translated to a movie because there are certain, you have certain expectations. And a lot of times those expectations are not met in a cinema format. So that's it for The Color Purple. The Color Purple is, as of this recording, is available on HBO Max. That's it for today. Next week, we conclude our celebration of Juneteenth with a celebration of African-American artistic expression with a very unusual movie for this podcast, Eddie Murphy's Raw. Follow us on Twitter, back at Backlick Cinema, or on Facebook or Instagram at Backlist Cinema Podcast for updates. And now we're posting videos on TikTok, as I kind of expounded upon last week and the week before that. Not many videos, I, I admit, but uh, I'm I'm going to work at creating more content for that platform. You can check us out at Backlist Cinema on TikTok. Uh, don't forget, you can contact us with any questions, comments, or suggestions at fanmail at backlickcinema.com and uh you know if you got any suggestions just let me know hit me up on the inbox or whatever or on social media and uh i'll see if it fits with the criteria which is it has to be before 1996 and it has to be a movie that zach hadn't seen before and it has to be a really good movie it has to be a movie that i've seen before and it has to be a movie that zachary hadn't seen before but if it's a really good movie um, I, I can, uh, uh, you know, I can be negotiated with. I'm willing to, I'm willing to negotiate. I, I've done it before. So uh, one last time, if you like the show, then please help us grow. To do this, you can subscribe to the show, rate us, or write a review on Spotify, Podcast.com, or Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie from yesteryear with your family. Hug your loved ones, and if you're going to be anything, be outstanding.